We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 108 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, July 26th, 2021. The start of what is a big week in Washington, D.C. sports. Washington football team training camp begins on Tuesday. NHL free agency begins on Wednesday as we monitor the situation that is the looming unrestricted free agency of the Capitals' Alex Ovechkin. The NBA draft is on Thursday night as we have reports of Bradley Beal perhaps about to ask to be traded from the Wizards. The MLB trade deadline is on Friday as we have the Nationals collapsing with an unacceptable three-game sweep at the Orioles over the weekend. Yes, if you are a Nats fan, that was unacceptable what happened over the weekend at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A whole lot could be happening over the next few days. It's good to have you with us. We are here for you weekdays, Monday through Friday. This is not a once a week, twice a week, or thrice a week podcast. This is an every weekday podcast with each show out by 5 a.m. for you the D.C. Sports Warrior. I will get to the latest on Bradley Beal and why it's time for the Nationals to sell and sell hard next segment, as well as give you my analysis of that three-game sweep at the Orioles. Look, there really isn't that much of a rivalry between the Nats and the O's, but I know that some fans are into it. I know that some of you are into it. That really is something that the tanking Orioles swept the Nats over three games over the weekend to perhaps provide the death blow to the Nats season. No, the Nats haven't been eliminated from anything, but if the Nats sell as they should, then the season for all intents and purposes is over. I have a lot for you on the Washington football team on the show. Major League Baseball's Cleveland Indians are becoming the Cleveland Guardians. I want to get into some aspects of the Indians name change that Jump out to me from the perspective of this ongoing Washington football team name change saga. Also, big installment in my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp. Quarterback. Yes, we have arrived at quarterback. 
Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, Steven Montez, the three biggest training camp questions for Washington at quarterback coming up later in the show. I have a capital segment for you as well of some things that Brian McClellan said on Saturday at his post-NHL draft press conference. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast, if you would like a spot on the Runaway Express that is the Al Galdi podcast, let the power of the pod work for you to grow your business or practice, especially as we approach football season. Again, you can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. We have all kinds of special packages available right now. Email from Phil. He writes, well, your Orioles showed up to win despite the fact they're going nowhere this year. You should be proud. The Nats, on the other hand, had everything to lose with the trade deadline looming, and they folded like a cheap card table. You can tell a good team because it dominates weaker opposition. Instead, the Nats let the O's dominate them. Clearly, the Nats simply are not a good team. And why aren't they good? Sometimes single events can determine long-term future trajectories. In my view, letting Anthony Rendon go after the 2019 World Series win, drop the number of stars below the critical value for this team, and began a cascade of problems that we saw propagate into and through this season. Interesting points there. Uh, Yes, I did grow up an Orioles fan. I still am an Orioles fan. I'm a child of the 80s and early 90s. I'm a child of home team sports. If you've been around here for a while, you know of what I speak when I say home team sports. So when I was growing up, my teams were the Redskins, the Orioles, the Bullets, and the Capitals. And those four teams remain my four teams and will always be my four teams. I didn't have a baseball team in Washington, D.C. I've said, though, if I was born, say, 10 years later, 12 years later, 15 years later, whatever it is, uh, I would be a Nationals fan. I mean, I wouldn't have grown up an Orioles fan. I would have grown up a Nationals fan. But I do like the Nats. I do root for the Nats. And I don't like seeing the Nats in this position. Uh, That's why I think they need to sell. So they get good again quickly. Uh, We'll get to that, like I said, next segment. But yes, uh, letting Anthony Rendon go was a mistake from the perspective of if you had to choose one of the two, right? Anthony Rendon and Steven Strasburg, the Nationals, two major free agents off the 2019 World Series Championship. Clearly, clearly, right now, you'd rather have Rendon than Strasburg. Each guy signed the same contract, although they are a little different because the Strasburg contract has, of course, deferrals, uh, but 70 years, $245 million. And while Rendon does have his flaws, the guy gets hurt a lot. Um, Rendon is a really good player. He's an everyday player. Steven Strasburg has totaled seven regular season starts over the last two years. And making things look even worse is that the Nats have completely failed to replace Anthony Rendon. Carter Keboom has been a bust, and the Nats have not had an adequate solution to third base in the post-Rendon era. And I think that has made the departure of Anthony Rendon even worse. But the offense has missed him for sure. Strasburg can't stay healthy. And you look at this now and you say, well, you know, we don't know if Rendon absolutely would have resigned with the Nats, but had the Nats made him the same offer that the Los Angeles Angels made him, i.e. no deferrals, uh, you do wonder if Rendon would have just taken that offer and the Nats wouldn't be much better off right now. Now, let's be honest here. Rendon has not had a great 2021 season, but he did have a very good 2020 season. And with Strasburg, it just feels hopeless at the moment. I mean, the Steven Strasburg contract in the moment 
is maybe the worst contract in major pro sports. Think about that. Think about how many contracts are encompassed by a statement like that. And yet right now, Strasburg at 70 years, $245 million looks to be among the worst, if not the worst, in terms of all major pro sports contracts. No, things are not going well right now when it comes to the Nationals. When it comes to your health, you, of course, always want to be doing well. And someone who can help to ensure that is Dr. George Verghese, the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland does such great work, focuses on medical dermatology. So if you have a skin issue, you certainly want to contact Dr. Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. But the Institute also focuses on skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. So if you or someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, first of all, we hope that you or that someone you know are doing well. But second of all, find out more about SRT. You can call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That's 301 396 3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So I want you to consider for a moment what could end up happening this week. Both Max Scherzer and Bradley Beal being traded. Think about that. This ultimately could be one of the all-time weeks in D.C. sports. Scherzer traded, Beal traded. We'll get to the Nats in a moment, but real quick, regarding Beal, we over the weekend had multiple reports that he may be about to ask to be traded. What has long been feared, what has long been suspected, may finally be on the verge of happening. NBA insider Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report on Saturday reported that Beal is considering requesting a trade prior to the NBA draft, which will take place this Thursday night. And NBA insider Sham Sharania of The Athletic on Sunday reported that, quote, Beal has been seriously mulling his future in recent weeks and at times has been very much on the fence about whether or not he wants to remain with the Wizards, sources tell The Athletic. The all-NBA guard could arrive at a decision during the upcoming week, end quote. Well, I would say a few things. Number one, if Beal is going to ask to be traded, he better ask before. 
Thursday night's NBA draft because if a deal is going to get done realistically, that bad boy needs to go down before the NBA draft. So draft picks for this year's draft are on the table in terms of assets that the Wizards can get back. Number two, you know, if Beal wants out, then so be it. I'm really not going to be heartbroken over that as a lifelong Bullet slash Wizards fan. I like Bradley Beal. I like many things about Beal, but he also has been part of a situation going nowhere for a while. And this notion that he's this innocent little angel and there's a halo over his head and he's done nothing wrong and it's been everyone else's fault, uh, that's not true. Beal has been a part of this as well. And so if he wants out, then trade him, okay? And trade him now and get back a bunch of assets. And by the way, if Beal is going to be traded, then the Wizards need to trade Russell Westbrook too. And this really becomes a rebuilding situation. So Beal may be traded this week and Max Scherzer and a number of other nationals not only may be traded this week, but should be traded this week. The MLB trade deadline is this Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern and the Nats need to sell. Oh, sure. If somehow the Nats author a four-game sweep at the Philadelphia Phillies this week and the National League standings look appreciably different come Friday, then I suppose we can talk. But otherwise, the Nats are done, the debate is over, and the conversation is complete. The Nats have a bad farm system. The Nats have a number of injuries. The Nats are old. The Nats lack versatility. The Nats need to retool. Not rebuild, but retool. The Nats need to trade all of their significant free agents to be Max Scherzer, Brad Hand, Daniel Hudson, Kyle Schwarber, even though he's hurt right now, Jan Gomes, Josh Harrison. All of those guys should be traded for whatever the Nats can get for those guys. Add inventory to the farm system, make some necessary moves this offseason to get younger and more versatile, and hopefully be back to being good in 2022. That's not impossible, especially in this NL East, which just isn't that good. Uh, But the Nats over the weekend suffered the ultimate indignity, a three-game sweep at the Orioles. Yes, the Nats got swept at the O's. The Nats had not been swept at the O's in a series of at least three games since 2010, but we had a three-game sweep for the Nats at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. 6-1 loss on Friday night, 5-3 loss on Saturday night, 5-4 walk-off loss on Sunday afternoon. The O's in the 2021 regular season had been 0-51 when trailing after eight innings. Make that 1-51 and because Brad Hand on Sunday afternoon allowed two runs in the bottom of the ninth for his fourth blown save of the season. He came into the game with the Nats leading 4-3, issued a leadoff hit by pitch of Michael Franco on a 1-2 pitch, then gave up a first pitch single to Ryan McKenna, then issued a six pitch walk to pinch hitter Austin Hayes, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12, then gave up a game tying first pitch RBI sack fly to Pat Valleca, and then gave up a walk-off fielder's choice grounder to Ramon Arias on a 1-2 pitch. A complete embarrassment. The Nats getting swept at the O's. You know, Mike Rizzo, in his conversation with reporters last Tuesday, talked about taking, quote, a dual path, end quote, approach to the MLB trade deadline, right? The idea being, well, maybe we'll be buyers, maybe we'll be sellers, we'll prepare for both scenarios and see how the team performs over the next week or so. Well, 
the Nats with this three-game sweep at the Orioles now are one and four since the Mike Rizzo dual approach comments with all four losses coming against the lowly Orioles and Miami Marlins. More clear, the sign could not be that the Nats are not very good and the Nats need to sell. The Nats now are 45 and 53, have a run differential of minus 26, are eight games behind the NL East leading New York Mets and are 11 games behind the San Diego Padres for the NL second wildcard spot. You know, I haven't even been bringing up the wildcard standings because the Nats are so far back, but understand the Nats are 11 games behind the Padres for the NL second wildcard spot. The Nats need to sell. And I don't want to hear about, you know, stay in the fight, okay? I don't want to hear about, uh, but I like Max, or I like Schwarby, or I like Huddy, okay? I like all those guys too, but they are all set to be free agents this offseason. They all can leave the Nats for nothing this offseason. Do you want to risk that? Do you want to risk that, especially for a season that's going nowhere right now? Or given the barren state of the farm system, would you not rather maximize these guys, maximize these free agents to be, maximize these assets, and get back some pieces that hopefully help to replenish the farm system? And you know what? Maybe if things work out, you can re-sign some of these guys this offseason. Like, if you're that dead set on Max Scherzer being back with the team next year, there's nothing saying you can't re-sign Max this offseason. Mike Rizzo has to do what's in the best interest of the Nationals. Being a seller at the MLB trade deadline right now is what is in the best interest of the Nationals. Again, barring some miracle over the next few days. And if Mike Rizzo needs advice on how to sell, you know who he should call John Grandlin, a.k.a. John G., one of the great supporters of this podcast. John Grandlin of Real Broker. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, even if you're just thinking about selling your home, contact John Grandlin and ask him about what I've been telling you about for weeks now, Commission Flex flexible commission rates. We talk about all the time, Ron Rivera, Don Ron, and his position flex. John Grandlin offers commission flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. Let John Grandlin put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, some conditions apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. Call John G. now. The phone number is 703-537-6747. John Grandlin is a great guy, big Nationals fan, big Washington football team fan. He will do a great job of selling your home. Mike Rizzo needs to sell. If you need to sell, contact John Grandlin. That phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747 or visit johngsellsforfree.com. Remember I mentioned zero commission? Ask John about that 
And the website says it all. John G. Sells for free dot com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And yes, he is the master of commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. Speaking of Ron and position flex, uh, more on that a bit later in the show. Uh, Okay, but with the Nationals. So understand, this past weekend for the Nats wasn't just about a three-game sweep at the Orioles. Like, that's bad enough. The weekend was about even more than that. We had two other whammies that further amplify this just not being the Nats season. So it turns out that Steven Strasburg has suffered another setback. This is unbelievable with this guy. So the Nats on June 2nd play Strasburg on the 10-day injured list with a neck strain. This is his second 10-day IL stint of the season. He was on the 10-day IL from April 18th, retroactive to April 15th, to May 21st with right shoulder inflammation. Davey Martinez, in a pregame press conference now two Saturdays ago, July 17th, revealed that Strasburg felt discomfort in his neck after throwing a simulated game at Oracle Park in San Francisco on July 9th. That was setback number one in Strasburg's recovery from this next rain. Then we found out about setback number two on Friday in another Davey pregame press conference, during which he revealed that Strasburg felt more discomfort in his neck after his latest throwing session. And then Davey in his pregame presser on Sunday said that Strasburg was to see another specialist on Monday. So yeah, any notion of, well, you know, Steven Strasburg, hopefully he'll be back by the beginning of August. Uh, No, that's not happening. Uh, I think it's 50-50 at best at this point if he pitches again the remainder of this season. So the Strasburg situation remains a horrendous nightmare. Seven-year, $245 million contract. The guy's made seven regular season starts over the last two years, over the first two years of this contract. You have five more years to go on this deal after this season. And this isn't Strasburg's fault, okay? The guy isn't soft. The guy isn't a wuss. His body is failing him. Speaking of that, Max Scherzer got scratched from his scheduled start in this series. Max was supposed to start the Nats 5-3 loss at the Orioles on Saturday night, but he got scratched from the start due to right triceps discomfort. By the way, discomfort that is rooted in Max getting hurt while taking batting practice. In another instance of a pitcher getting injured while batting or base running, either in a game or practicing. Uh, this is a joke, man. This has got to stop. Pitchers batting. I, I, to me, it's it's not entertaining when they bat. It, these at-bats, like 99% of the time, are non-competitive. But even beyond that, you have pitchers, and more often than you think, big money pitchers, getting hurt. This is bad for the game that Max Scherzer gets hurt taking batting practice. Uh, but with Max, this marks, by my count, a sixth injury thing for Max Scherzer since the start of the 2019 season. He, during the 2019 regular season, dealt with two stints on the 10-day injured list. He then, of course, got shockingly scratched from his scheduled start in 2019 World Series Game 5. Davey Martinez, on February 18th of this year, the day on which Nats pitchers and catchers had their first workout of 2021 spring training, revealed that Max had sprained his left ankle while conditioning about two weeks earlier. And then we had Max on the 10-day injured list earlier this season, June 15th, retroactive to June 12th, 
to June 22nd with groin inflammation. And now we have Max having gotten scratched from his scheduled start this past Saturday night due to right triceps discomfort. Now, not a single one of these injuries was like super serious, but these things add up. And again, this is now six injury things for Max since the start of the 2019 season. Look, he's in his age 36 season. He's a human being. I mean, his body is breaking down. This happens. And here we have this now. He's the ace of the staff. He's been the only truly reliable starting pitcher the Nats have had this season. And he can't be counted on at this point to post start in and start out. Like the guy is having a number of these nuisance type injuries pop up every so often. And it happened again over the weekend with Scherzer needing to be scratched because of the right triceps discomfort. Again, something that he first felt while taking batting practice. So yeah, the three-game sweep at the Orioles, another setback for Steven Strasburg, Max Scherzer dealing with yet another nuisance injury and yet another sign that his body is breaking down. How was your weekend? Because the Nationals weekend was not so good. Also, it was a bad weekend for the Nationals offense. Uh, The Nats in this three-game sweep at the Orioles totaled just eight runs over the three games, went two for 23 with runners in scoring position. Juan Soto had one hit the entire series. That was it. One hit for Juan Soto the entire series. He went one for 10 with a homer and three walks. So yes, the one hit was a homer and the homer was great, but that was his only hit of the series. Soto in a 5-3 loss at the Orioles on Saturday night, a one-out opposite field solo homer to left field off Orioles reliever Adam Pletko in the top of the seventh inning. Also for Soto in that game was a great defensive play, made a terrific diving catch in the right center field gap to rob Michael Franco of a hit on his one-out RBI sack fly in the Orioles' three-run sixth inning. But just one hit for Juan Soto in the series. Trey Turner did have a pretty good series, uh, four for 13 with a double and three singles. He, in that loss on Saturday night, had a two-out first pitch, two-run single in the top of the eighth. But that was an inning in which the Nats only scored two runs despite having had the bases loaded with no outs. Uh, Josh Bell and Ryan Zimmerman each hit a homer in the series. You like that, but each didn't do much else in the series. Bell was the Nats starting first baseman and number four batter in all three games. Zimmerman was the Nats starting DH and number five batter in all three games. Isn't that interesting, by the way? The thinking going into the season was that Zimmerman was Bell's defensive superior. Zimmerman would be replacing Bell in the later innings of closed games for defensive purposes. And certainly when the Nationals played games in American League ballparks, it would be Bell who would DH and Zimmerman who would start at first base. And yet in this series, Bell was the Nats starting first baseman in all three games. Josh Bell has had a very good defensive season given his defensive history, which had not been good. Uh, But Josh Bell has worked at his defense, has done a good job defensively this season. And so he ends up being the starting first baseman in all three games in this series. And like nobody batted an eye. It was like, yeah, that makes sense. Josh Bell has done a good job at first base. Uh, But yeah, neither guy did much beyond his home run. So Bell in the 6-1 loss at the O's on Friday night, leadoff homer on a bomb uh, to right center field off Orioles starter Jorge Lopez in the top of the fourth. The homer going a projected 448 feet for StatCast. And then Zimmerman in the 5-4 loss at the O's on Sunday afternoon. One of the big hits of the weekend for the Nats. I mean, it's all relative, but two out, three run homer off Orioles starter John Means to right center field for a 4-3 Nats lead in the top of the six. That homer going a projected 402 feet 
per StatCast. I thought that the Nats really missed Jan Gomes in this series. So the Nats on July 10th put Gomes on the 10-day injured list with an oblique strain. The Nats also remain without their backup catcher, Alex Avila, who was put on the 10-day injured list on July 3rd, retroactive to July 2nd, with bilateral calf strains. Tres Pereira was the Nats' starting catcher and number eight batter in each of the first two games of the series. He, over those two games, went a combined 0 for 6 with a strikeout and a hit by pitch. And then Rene Rivera was back to playing for the Nats in the loss on Sunday, starting catcher and number eight batter, 0 for 3 with a strikeout. So Nats catchers over the weekend, a combined 0 for 9. Uh, not good, okay? And I know that catcher is more of a defensive position than an offensive position, but you'd like to do better than 0 for 9. Gomes certainly would have done better than 0 for 9, but that's what you got from the catcher position over the weekend. Of course, the Nats also remain without Kyle Schwarber and Starling Castro for two very different reasons. The Nats have had Schwarber on a 10-day injured list with a right hamstring strain since July 3rd. The Nats have been without Starling Castro since he was placed on administrative leave by Major League Baseball on July 16th for a domestic violence allegation. By the way, on Friday, we learned that Castro's stay on administrative leave had been extended through this Thursday, uh, July 29th. So you're without two key bats in that regard, because keep in mind, Castro was doing well at the time of him being placed on administrative leave. Josh Harrison was the Nats' number six batter in all three games in the series, starting third baseman in games one and two, starting left fielder in game three. He did do a pretty good job offensively in the series, but just not enough offense in this series. You know, the Nats are just trying to feel their way at these various spots at which the Nats are dealing with injury. Also, in a spot like center field, in which we now have essentially a timeshare between Victor Robles and Andrew Stevenson. Yeah, this is no longer Victor Robles' job, the starting center field job. So this started with Stevenson being the Nats starting center fielder in two of the three games in the Nats winning two or three over the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park last week. Then Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference on Friday said that the idea is for Stevenson to start against most righties and Robles to start against most lefties. Mm, that's interesting because about 75% of pitchers are righties. So that tells you everything you need to know right now. Andrew Stevenson, if you don't want to call him the Nats' number one center fielder, he's certainly the 1A to Robles' 1B. And sure enough, Stevenson was the Nats' starting center fielder and number nine batter in games one and two in this series. Robles was the Nats' starting center fielder and number nine batter in game three in this series. Stevenson in the loss on Friday night, did have a double and a walk, but he went 0 for 2 with two strikeouts in the game two loss on Saturday night, and Robles went 0 for 4 in the loss on Sunday afternoon. Alcides Escobar did nothing over games one and two of the series for the Nats, did have a good game three. Escobar over the first two games of the series, 0 for 8 with two strikeouts, but Escobar in the loss on Sunday afternoon, two leadoff hit by pitches in run scoring innings for the Nats. That's what Escobar does, man. He gets on base many times in a trashy fashion, but he gets on base two leadoff hit by pitches and run scoring innings for the Nats. And then he had a two out double on a one, two pitch in the top of the seventh. And he had a one out single on an O two pitch in the top of the ninth. And Carter Keboom was back for the Nats in this series as Jordy Mercer went back on the 10 day injured list. So the Nats on Saturday put Jordy Mercer on the 10 day injured list retroactive to July 21st with a left calf strain and recalled Keyboom from AAA Rochester. So Keyboom back with the Nats at the major league level for the first time 
since being demoted to the Nats' alternate training site in Fredericksburg, Virginia on April 9th. Remember, Keyboom, off all the drama of spring training, actually ended up making the Nats' season opening roster due to the Nats' COVID-19 outbreak, but the Nats sent him back to the minor league level as soon as the Nats could. They couldn't wait to demote Carter Keyboom. Keyboom ended up playing some in this series. He had a pinch hit by pitch in the 5-3 loss on Saturday night in that Nats two-run eighth inning in that game. But he also made the final out of the game. He looked feeble in striking out on three pitches against Orioles reliever Dylan Tate with a run run first and two outs to end the game. Keeboom was actually the Nats starting third baseman and number seven batter in the loss on Sunday afternoon, 0 for 3 with a walk. In terms of Nats starting pitching in this three-game sweep at the Orioles, you know, starting pitching was meh. I mean, you know, Max Scherzer got scratched so there was only so much you were going to get. Patrick Corbin was bad again. 6-1 loss at the O's on Friday night. Corbin, five runs, four earned in five and a third innings. You could argue that he didn't pitch as bad as the final line indicated, but the line was what it was. Corbin continues to be such a disappointment this year in year three of a six-year, $140 million contract. He now is an ERA of 571 over 19 starts this season. John Lester was just so-so in the 5-3 loss at the O's on Saturday night. Three runs in five innings. And Paolo Espino was just so-so in the 5-4 loss at the O's on Sunday afternoon. Three runs in five innings on three solo homers. Next up for the Nats, a four-game series at the Philadelphia Phillies. Game one Monday night at 7.05. Joe Ross is expected to start for the Nats. Uh, The Nats on July 8th surprisingly put Ross on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to July 7th with right elbow inflammation. So it'll be good to have him back. Although, you know, at this point, everything feels like too little, too late. In terms of the Orioles in this series, you know, we talk about both the Nationals and the Orioles on the Al Galdi podcast. And so with the Nats playing the Orioles over the weekend, let me work in some Orioles-related thoughts here. So the O's now are an American League worst 34 and 64 And the O's have got to be laughing like crazy at what happened over the weekend. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel, uh, the O's were in the win column in all three games. The tanking, rebuilding Orioles swept the big money win now Nationals. Uh, That says a lot about the state of the Nationals right now. I don't know that it says much about the state of the Orioles, but, you know, the O's have done things like this over the course of this season. Remember the Orioles back in late June pulled off that stunning three-game sweep at Dusty Baker and the Houston Astros. What was as interesting as anything with the O's in this series was that the worst start that the O's got in the series was from John Means. The O's started Jorge Lopez in game one, Matt Harvey in game two, and John Means in game three. And of course, Means ends up having the worst outing of the three. Uh, The 5-4 win over the Nats at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Sunday afternoon means four runs in six and two-thirds innings. But Lopez, he was solid in the Orioles' 6-1 win over the Nats at Camden Yards on Friday night, one run in four and two-thirds innings. And Harvey, yeah, Matt Harvey, in the 5-3 win over the Nats at Camden Yards on Saturday night, very good for a second consecutive start. Six scoreless innings on four strikeouts versus one hit, a Trey Turner double, and no walks on 83 pitches. This off Harvey tossing six scoreless innings in the Orioles' 5-0 win at the Kansas City Royals now two Sunday afternoons ago, July 18th. Look, my whole thing with Harvey has been, 
The reason you have him here is to fix him and then to flip him. It's been a wild ride with Harvey. He was good initially, then he was horrendous. Now, all of a sudden, in each of his last two starts, he's tossed six scoreless innings. Is it possible? (laughs) Is it possible the O's could end up flipping him for something come the MLB trade deadline on Friday? I don't know, man. I really have my doubts. It's hard to believe there's some team out there, a contending team, that would trust Matt Harvey, that would say, yeah, let's go ahead and take a flyer on this guy. He's looked good over his last two outings. But he has looked good over his last two outings. And he was decent initially. Harvey, over his first seven starts of this season, did have an ERA of 360. A lot of it was smoke and mirrors. You know, he puts guys on base. But, you know, a 360 ERA is a 360 ERA. I guess you can't dismiss the idea of the Orioles ultimately flipping Matt Harvey at this point. Boy, wouldn't that be nuts off the rut he was in. I mean, remember, Matt Harvey at one point over 11 starts allowed 51 earned runs in 41 innings. I was like, why is this guy still on the ball club? Well, maybe the Orioles are going to end up getting something out of Matt Harvey after all. Also, uh, this stood out to me from an Orioles perspective in this series. The job that the Orioles' major batters did. You know, a lot of this series ended up coming down to this. The Orioles' stars were better than the National stars. You know, I mentioned Juan Soto having one hit the entire series. Cedric Mullins in the series went 5-for-12 with two doubles and three singles. Trey Mancini in the series went 5-for-12 with two homers, a double, and two singles. Great jobs by those two guys. You had something like the 5-3 Orioles win over the Nats at Camden Yards on Saturday night. How about the Orioles' top four batters in that game? So numbers one through four in the lineup. Cedric Mullins, Austin Hayes, Trey Mancini, and Ryan Mountcastle. Those four guys in that game, a combined seven for 15 with two homers, three doubles, two singles, and a walk. And with the trade deadline coming up, I do want to make mention of this. Paul Fry, the Orioles reliever, he is very much a trade chip. He looked great in the 6-1 win over the Nats at Camden Yards on Friday night. One and a third perfect innings with three strikeouts, which were of Josh Bell, Ryan Zimmerman, and Josh Harrison in a perfect top of the sixth. Paul Fry absolutely should be dealt and I think will be dealt come that deadline on Friday. No game for the O's on Monday. They on Tuesday night begin a two-game series against the Miami Marlins at Camden Yards. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, guess who has announced a new name? No, not our Washington football team, but the Cleveland Indians. We knew that the Indians were changing their name. We now know to what? The Guardians. The Cleveland Indians on Friday announced their new name, the Cleveland Guardians. Now, how about this for irony? Friday was July 23rd. That just happened to be one year to the day of the Redskins announcing that they would call themselves the Washington football team, pending adoption of a new name. Just funny how that worked out. But Guardians, to me, is fine uh, for Cleveland. Uh, I, I would not have wanted that as the new name for Washington. Guardians isn't a terrible name, but it's kind of an uninspiring name, at least for Washington. Guardians actually isn't some random name for Cleveland. Uh, Guardians may sound random, but it isn't for Cleveland. Guardians is an homage to the Guardians of Traffic which are sculpted sandstone figures atop the Hope Memorial Bridge in Cleveland. I know there has been a push for Washington to not just pick some random new name, but to pick a name with some connection to the D.C. area. I'm in favor of that as well. But Guardians, even though it sounds random, isn't random for Cleveland. Now, as you perhaps know, one of my biggest rules for Washington's next name, the permanent name, is that the name be able to be condensed into a one-syllable nickname i.e. Skins for Redskins, Nats for Nationals, Caps for Capitals, Wiz for Wizards, O's for Orioles, Terps for Terrapins. You get the idea. Here's the question. Is there a one-syllable means of referring to the Guardians? If not, that's a problem. If there is a one-syllable means of referring to the Guardians, then is that one-syllable nickname, wait for it, Guards. The other one's a guard. Yes, the guards. The other one's a guard. Yeah. Are the Cleveland Indians in becoming the Cleveland Guardians, in fact, giving us the ultimate ode to Jay Gruden off what he once said about Brandon Sheriff? The other one's a guard. Yeah, (laughs) we may have the Cleveland Guards, a team called the Guards here. Uh, Just something to be thinking about. But some more observations related to our Washington football team's name change from the Cleveland Indians becoming the Cleveland Guardians. So the Indians, like Washington, very much played up the process by which the new name was arrived at. The Indians in a press release said that they compiled 140 hours of interviews with fans, community leaders, and front office personnel, surveyed 40,000 fans, had 4,000 fans sign up to participate in research, conducted 100-plus hours of brainstorming sessions, and generated 1,198 name options. Not 1,200, 1,198 name options, which were narrowed down 
through 14 rounds of vetting. Washington has very much trumpeted its fan involvement in the name change. The Indians did that as well. Washington has very much emphasized the process being exhaustive. The Indians did that as well. Not really surprising. I mean, you're going to play up fan involvement even if it doesn't actually mean much, and you're going to want to tell the world how hard you worked. But it is worth noting that Washington isn't the only team emphasizing these things. The Indians are emphasizing these things too. Uh, The Indians, like Washington, ran into trademark issues. I found this especially interesting. So the Cleveland Spiders, uh, they were a baseball team that competed at what can be recognized as the major league level from 1887 to 1899. Uh, Baseball's early history in terms of leagues and associations is very confusing, but we back in the late 1800s had the Cleveland Spiders. There was a movement for the Cleveland Indians to become the Cleveland Spiders, not unlike the movement for Washington to become the Washington Red Wolves. But it turns out that a person named Arlen Love in Vancouver, Washington, applied for a trademark of Cleveland Spiders with the intended use for sports jerseys. Sound familiar? The Washington football team has gone through something very similar. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office on June 18th issued a refusal of the Washington football team's attempt to trademark the name Washington football team on clothing based in large part on Washington football team being too close to Washington football club, which had been previously trademarked. The USPTO made the decision based on a man having successfully trademarked Washington football club years earlier. That man is a Virginia realtor named Philip McCauley, who in 2014, in an effort to squat on a number of potential new names for the Redskins, were they to ever change their name, filed to trademark a number of potential names, and then in 2015 made and sold clothing to satisfy what are called use and commerce provisions, which are meant to prevent people from doing exactly as Macaulay did. And Macaulay in May 2015 was awarded the trademarks, including one for Washington Football Club. Yes, this is a dirty business, the business of names and logos and trademarks and a problem that Washington has dealt with. The Indians apparently dealt with to at least some extent. I do want to address a complaint that was making the rounds over the last few days. And that complaint was some version of, how come the Indians picked their new name so much faster than Washington is picking its new name? So no doubt, the Indians did settle on their new name much faster than Washington is settling on its new name. I mean, here's the timeline. The Cleveland Indians last December 14th announced that they were beginning the process of changing from the team name Indians. The Indians process lasted from December 14th, 2020 to July 23rd, 2021. Washington's process started on July 3rd, 2020, when the team issued a statement saying that the team would be undergoing, quote, a thorough review of the team's name, end quote. So yeah, the Indians process lasted a little more than seven months. Washington's process has been going on for about 13 months now. And Jason Wright has said that the permanent name and logo won't be unveiled until early 2022. But personally, I'm fine with Washington taking its time. Getting this right matters so much more than getting this done quickly. But if you're among those who is mad that Washington's name change is taking so long, I would just ask you this. What do you think the reaction would have been had Washington quickly announced a new name? First of all, if the name wasn't good, 
people would hate on the name like crazy. There's already going to be a lot of hate no matter what the new name is. But given the trademark issues, quickly announcing a new name was always going to be a challenge. And even if you did announce the new name quickly, I can only imagine if the new name wasn't great, the kind of reaction that the new name would have gotten. But just more generally speaking, people would have criticized Washington for not taking its time with the new name, had a new name been announced quickly. You know, there's an element here of Washington can't win. If the team takes its time in settling on a new name, the team is taking too long. If the team moves quickly into announcing a new name, it's, oh, why the team rush this? You know, why didn't the team take its time? Typical Dan Snyder, always impatient, always reactive, right? Like, would that not have been a reaction from many people? I think it totally would have been. Let the process happen. The, the, the process, if it has to happen, then there's no crime in the process taking a while. Now, if the team is still the Washington football team next season for a third consecutive season, then that's a problem, okay? I mean, at some point, you do have to pick a name. But like I said, early 2022, per Jason Wright, is when the new name and logo will be revealed. One more thing, and this is my favorite thing. You, as of very early Monday morning, could still, could still buy Chief Wahoo Cleveland Indians merchandise on Amazon.com. I have brought this up previously in terms of the outright hypocrisy of Amazon and the whole Washington name change saga. Remember, Amazon on July 8th, 2020, said that it was removing Redskins merchandise for sale. Said a spokesperson to CNBC, quote, with the announcement from the Washington team and the NFL, we are removing products with the team's name and logo from our stores. Failure to properly close or delete all restricted product listings from your inventory may result in deactivation, end quote. CNBC reported that sellers on Amazon were given 48 hours to remove Redskins merchandise. So Amazon in July 2020 was so serious about how awful the name Redskins was, and yet here we are in late July 2021, and still you can buy Chief Wahoo Cleveland Indians merchandise on Amazon.com. It's unbelievable. I mean, as you certainly know, the Chief Wahoo logo is widely considered to be far more offensive than the Redskins logo ever was. And understand the point that I'm making here. This isn't some anti-name change rant. This isn't me saying, hey, the name should still be Redskins. This is an anti-hypocrisy rant, okay? Amazon clearly was virtue signaling with its hardline stance against Redskins merchandise in July 2020. Amazon doesn't care about offending Native Americans. Amazon doesn't care about the potential pitfalls of cultural appropriation. Amazon still is selling Chief Wahoo Cleveland Indians merchandise, even though the Indians last December announced that they were changing their name. And the Indians just this past Friday officially announced what the new name will be. It's unbelievable. You can look it up yourself. Go to Amazon.com, type in Chief Wahoo, and tell me what comes up. You can still buy Chief Wahoo Cleveland Indians merchandise on Amazon.com. Remember this the next time that someone or some company preaches against how horrible the Redskins name was. And again, this isn't an anti-name change rant, okay? If you feel like the Redskins name should change, I think that is a reasonable opinion to have. My problem is with the hypocrisy of Amazon and others in this situation as well. But yes, if you wanted the name of the Washington football team to ultimately be the Washington Guardians, uh, that name now off the table 
and that the name will be that of what remains known as the Cleveland Indians. And that's another aspect of all of this that's interesting. The Indians' name is supposedly offensive, and yet the Indians' name was kept for this 2021 MLB season. You know, everyone is saying the name Indians when referring to the Major League team in Cleveland because the name of the Major League team in Cleveland is still the Indians. The Redskins, of course, did not do that. The Redskins went with Washington football team. The Indians kept the supposedly offensive name for another season. Imagine if the Redskins had tried to do that. Do you think that they would have gotten away with that the way that the Indians have? And I know you say, well, Redskins is a slur. Indians is not necessarily a slur. I hear you on that. But I just, again, I find that aspect of this interesting. If Indians is wrong, then shouldn't Indians not be the name of the Cleveland Indians in this 2021 MLB season? So it's just interesting to me to do the compare and contrast of the two situations. The Redskins name changed pretty clearly, much more high profile, much more contentious than the Indians name changed. And there are, are a lot of reasons for that. So we'll see what the Washington football team ultimately is known as. And we'll soon have the Cleveland Guardians. The other one's a guard. Yes, perhaps to be known as the guards. All right, my friends, my people, let's get to it. Our countdown to Washington football team training camp, because remember, it is the final countdown. It's the final That's right. It is the final countdown. Just two installments of the countdown are left, including this one, because Washington football team training camp will begin tomorrow, Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond. will take place in Richmond through July 31st. Then we'll move to the team facility in Ashburn. I have been giving to you a position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp. We've been going in-depth on one position group each show. The three biggest questions for the position group for training camp, excluding injury, excluding does everyone stay healthy? That's a question for every position group. That is, as we like to say, a cop-out question. Uh, And also, these are questions for training camp, questions to which we'll have answers by the end of training camp, not questions for the upcoming season, questions for camp. We have two position groups, quote-unquote, left. Uh, They are quarterback and special teams. I'll do special teams on Tuesday's show, episode 109. But right now on this episode, 108, quarterback. Yes, a position we've talked about a time or 800 over the last five months since this podcast started. We have covered a lot of ground on this podcast regarding Washington at quarterback. What could be done, what should be done, what was done. We have gotten into quarterback theory like the whole Washington is zigging while others are zagging phenomenon that I've talked about. We have listened to and reacted to and interpreted and dissected Ron Rivera and others talking about Washington at the quarterback position. We've had a number of guests address Washington at the quarterback position. And now we are on the doorstep of actual action. Training camp. We still will have words. We still will very much have conversation. Uh, But we now finally will have action in the form of training camp practices, then, of course, the preseason, and then, of course, the regular season. So here we go. Question number one for the Washington football team at quarterback in training camp. How real is the quarterback competition? The time for talking is just about done. All of this stuff 
from Rod Rivera in the immediate aftermath of the conclusion of offseason practices about a quarterback competition. Was this stuff real? So let's reset what has happened because it's easy to forget and or lose track. This all started when Rod Rivera on April 1st, April Fool's Day, interestingly enough, in a press conference said that Ryan Fitzpatrick would be coming in as Washington's starting quarterback, but also that there would be a competition. June 7th, Washington quarterbacks coach Ken Zampezi in a press conference responded to a question asking for the keys for Taylor Heineke to prove that he isn't a flash in the pan by saying, quote, stay on the field. The rest of it spoke for itself this past year, end quote. And Zampisi ended up going on and on about how good Heineke can be. These were very telling comments. And of course, you don't expect Zampisi to like trash Heineke, but Zampisi ended up being effusive in his praise of Heineke. Take a listen. Again, the question evolved asking for the keys for Heineke to prove that he isn't a flash in the pan. Stay on the field. The rest of it is, is spoke for itself here this past year. Five quarters. Yeah, okay, five quarters. But, yeah, it was a pretty good five quarters right there. We could have that five quarters. Let's extrapolate that out into the whole season. Wow. That'd be pretty good. So we're going to try to keep him healthy, get him further along in his understanding of the offense. And, and being comfortable with us and what we're doing and the players around him. And good things will happen because he wants to. He's got a lot of grit and toughness. And shoot, he fought back off the couch. He wasn't on a roster. There's, there's, there's a guy that's kicked around. That's my kind of guy. He got kicked around a little bit. He's hungry, and, and I'm really excited he's here. Yeah, Ken Zampezi on June 7th showering Taylor Heineke with praise. All right, so we have those Zampezi comments on June 7th. Then just a few days later, June 10th, the biggest salvo in all of this quarterback competition conversation, Ron Rivera, in his final post-practice press conference of Washington's mandatory minicamp, responded to an open-ended question about the quarterback play in minicamp by praising Ryan Fitzpatrick, adamantly praising Taylor Heineke, including calling him, quote, an extremely accurate passer end quote, talking up the quarterback competition and not even mentioning Kyle Allen. And what I'm going to do is play for you the question and then the answer, because I want you to hear this answer in its full context. The question was asked by Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Hi, Ron. Um, just overall, what was your what was your assessment of the quarterback play over these last three days? And just generally, what were some of the things that um, I guess stood out to you, um, good or bad. Well, first of all, how, how, how quickly things were picked up, um, how well um, uh, Fitz jives with, uh, with our receiving core, our tight ends, our running backs, um, the rapport he has with the offensive line. That was, that was good to see. Um, when Taylor got back in there, it was good to see Taylor. Is, um, you know, the one thing that, that you can say about Taylor is, is he, he's an extremely – accurate passer delivers a really good ball to the receivers. Um, his rapport with those guys is, 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 is also very good. So it's, 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 it's going to be a good competition. It really is. I, I look forward to it. I think it's going to push our football team and make our football team better. I, I just feel that, you know, going into this knowing we have a, we have a proven guy there that's that, that, that 
that has the ability to lead us. But again, we have a guy in Taylor that shows us that he can do it. They're going to compete. They're going to push. And, and, and I'm looking forward to it. And those comments from Ron on June 10th, easily the most significant comments in this entire saga of, is there a quarterback competition? Also, Ron later in that press conference again expressed regret over not having conducted a quarterback competition at training camp in 2020. So we have all of these comments, all of these words. What do they truly mean? Do they mean that, yes, we are about to have a quarterback competition between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Taylor Heineke. Not necessarily an even-steven competition in which each guy gets exactly the same amount of first-team practice reps, but a competition in which Taylor Heineke truly has a shot at being Washington's starting quarterback in Week 1. A competition in which Ron Rivera truly is open-minded about Heineke being the QB1. Or are all of these words just empty words? Is Ron just trying to motivate Fitzpatrick? and or Heineke? Is Ron just saying what he feels like he has to say in the midst of this culture overhaul? We shall see. The actions will speak. If Ryan Fitzpatrick gets every first-team practice rep in training camp, and we have nothing beyond the occasional lip service of a quarterback competition in terms of words from Ron Rivera and others about the quarterback competition, then there isn't truly a competition. But if Taylor Heineke does get first-team practice reps, and Ron does continually talk up the competition and talk up Heineke the way that Ron did in the immediate aftermath of the conclusion of off-season practices, and players indicate that the competition is real, then, my friends, we have ourselves a battle. Let's get it there, Heineke! Heineke! Yes, as Chase Young sang last season, Heineke. Question number two for the Washington football team at quarterback in training camp. What happens with Kyle Allen? The greatest mystery of this Washington football team offseason was what caused Ron Rivera to sour on Kyle Allen because clearly Ron Rivera soured on Kyle Allen. Remember, Kyle was Ron's guy. Ron traded a 2025th round pick to the Carolina Panthers for Kyle Allen. Maybe the most telling comments from Ron all of last season came last December 30th in the lead-up to the 2014 NFC East clinching win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Week 17. When asked whether Washington would have contended for the playoffs without Alex Smith, Ron said, quote, well, if we had a healthy Kyle Allen, I think we could have, end quote. But Ron, this past June 10th, in that final post-practice press conference of Washington's mandatory minicamp, responded to that open-ended question about the quarterback play in minicamp by praising Fitzpatrick, praising Heineke, talking up a quarterback competition, and not even mentioning Kyle Allen. Kyle has been excluded from the quarterback competition to whatever extent it exists. Now, you might say, well, that's probably because Kyle is coming off injury. And yes, he is. Kyle, in that 23-20 loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field, in week nine of last season, suffered a dislocated left ankle and reported small fracture. He underwent surgery last November 13th. It would be perfectly acceptable if Ron at some point said, yeah, we love Kyle, but he's coming off injury. We need to be careful with Kyle. But Ron hasn't said that. Ron hasn't said anything close to that. In fact, Ron on June 16th, in a conversation with Washington football team insider 
Ben Standig of The Athletic DC, responded to a question about why Kyle Allen isn't a part of this quarterback competition mix. Didn't say why. Only said, quote, I've always kind of felt that way going into it, end quote. Ron gets asked, hey, why no Kyle Allen in all of this? And here is the initial portion of Ron's answer. I've always kind of felt that way going into it. I, I, I know, you know, Ryan has the job right now and, and um, it's his to have. You know, I, I'm not going to say his to lose. I think that's the wrong way to look at things. It's his to have. Yeah. <laughs> so no answer as to why there's no Kyle Allen in the quarterback competition. So not only do we have Ron not including Kyle Allen in the quarterback competition to whatever extent that exists, we also have Ron not answering why he isn't including Kyle Allen in the quarterback competition, only saying, quote, I've always kind of felt that way going into it, end quote. I've always kind of felt that way going into it. Yeah, it's really amazing. Ron has gone from trading for Kyle Allen, benching Dwayne Haskins in favor of Kyle Allen, and then saying that Kyle Allen could have done what Alex Smith did, to now not including Kyle Allen in the quarterback competition, and not even saying why Kyle Allen isn't included in the quarterback competition. What happened? What's going on here? Going to be very interesting to see where this Kyle Allen situation goes during training camp including this. Does Kyle Allen get cut? I, this offseason, had always felt that Ron was going to keep three quarterbacks on the season-opening 53-man roster. Now, I don't know that anyone knows what to think about Kyle Allen's future here. Question number three for the Washington football team at quarterback in training camp. Is this Steven Montez, Taysom Hill thing really a thing? So Washington, as most of you know, doesn't have three quarterbacks on its roster right now. Washington has four quarterbacks on its roster right now. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, and Steven Montez. Washington has to lead the NFL in Montez's, by the way. Montez Sweat and Steven Montez. Anyway, one of the more interesting things that emerged in the offseason is this looming attempt to see if Steven Montez can serve in a Taysom Hill like role for Washington. Washington signed Montez as an undrafted free agent out of Colorado on April 28th, 2020. Montez was Colorado's starting quarterback for three seasons, 2017 through 2019. Ben Standig in March reported that Washington was interested in potentially using Montez, similar to how the New Orleans Saints have used quarterback Taysom Hill, who of course has been used by the Saints in these creative formations as a passer, a pass catcher, and a ball carrier. The Saints' usage of Taysom Hill really has been cutting edge and has been effective. And it's not that we haven't seen teams use quarterbacks off the bench in multiple ways before, but Hill is a very unique weapon, the likes of which we haven't seen much of at quarterback over the years. Like some quarterbacks have come off the bench and been used in, you know, innovative ways as both say passers and ball carriers. Here you have Taysom Hill not only throwing and running with footballs, but catching footballs as well. Wrote Ben, quote, what the coaches know is Montez is an impressive athlete 
with good physical traits. There's a world where over time, the quarterback who finished his college career with 63 touchdown passes and 9,710 passing yards pushes for a spot solely on his throwing skills. When last season wrapped, the coaching staff informed Montez, the quickest path to contributing likely comes in the utility role popularized in recent years by the Saints with Hill, end quote. Now, Montez, in a post-minicamp practice press conference on June 8th, confirmed that he is potentially going to serve in a Taysom Hill-like way. This was Montez on June 8th on potentially being utilized in this innovative way by his coaches. I mean, I, that's kind of that's up to them. That's their call. I'm just trying to be here and uh, and just work hard every day and uh, and just and just give it the give it the best of my abilities with whatever role they decide to give me. And uh, and really, I just want to help the team however I can. When is the last time that Montez played a position other than quarterback? Uh, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. <laughs> let me tell you, but uh, but I mean, I think I think just with the, with the mentality that I have to just come in and soak everything up and work hard, work my butt off. I mean, I think I really can. Uh, be kind of a utility guy, utility tool. I mean, I'm willing to try everything and I'm going to, I'm going to give you 110% at whatever position or, or assignment you give me. I'm going to, I'm going to give it my all and, uh, and I'm going to work my butt off and then try to execute the technique correctly. Yeah. Probably pre-high school, honestly. I mean, I, I started playing football my freshman year of high school. So, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be a new experience for me, but I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And uh, I'm open to the challenge for sure. Look, Steven Montez is an athlete. He at the 2020 NFL Scouting Combine measured as being 6'4 and ran a 4.6840. Barring Fitzpatrick, Heineke, or Allen getting injured, Montez isn't making Washington's season opening roster as a quarterback. So this Taysom Hill thing with Montez does offer a viable path by which Montez can make the season opening roster. The whole thing may be far-fetched, but it's certainly not unfathomable. And I think it's an innovative, outside-the-box way of trying to see, all right, can we get a guy who we like and who is a good athlete on our team, but just in a way that best serves our team right now, given what we have at his primary position? And think about this, too. Does what's happening with Steven Montez not represent the ultimate in the Ron Rivera position flex phenomenon? Ron literally is trying to force position flex on a guy in trying to turn Steven Montez into Taysom Hill. Position flex. Yeah, position flex. Like, it's one thing to sign and draft guys with position flex. Here we have Ron Rivera trying to mold a guy into being a position flex guy. Position flex. Yeah, Ron's like a mad scientist in a lab saying signing and drafting guys with position flex isn't enough. What if we start turning guys we already have into position flex guys? Position flex. Yeah, Ron is a madman. He is a madman, I tell you. Uh, But good for Steven Montez for embracing this. And you know what? If this works, he looks great. And Ron looks like a genius. All right, guys, if you love listening to me on the Al Galdi podcast, what's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show? And there's no better place to host than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle 
is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of all that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for just $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So if you're ready to do more than just listening to me talk about D.C. area sports, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. Check out the description box in this episode to find out more. That's bwhustle.com slash join. All right, so we had the 2021 NHL Entry Draft over the weekend. The Caps did not have a first-round pick due to the Anthony Mantha trade. It did make six selections on Saturday, which was day two of the draft. Also on Saturday was a post-draft press conference for Caps Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan, and he said two things to note. Number one, McClellan said that the hope is to finish a contract extension with Alex Ovechkin prior to the start of free agency. NHL free agency begins its Wednesday at noon Eastern. The Caps strategically did not sign Ovechkin to an extension prior to last Wednesday night's expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken. And the idea behind this was so that the Caps would leave Ovechkin unprotected. But because he is about to go into unrestricted free agency, the Kraken wouldn't take Ovechkin because taking Ovechkin would have made no sense because a Kraken would have taken him and then he would have just become a free agent. Well, the expansion draft has come and gone and there's still no contract officially anyway between the Caps and Ovechkin. Ovechkin all the way back on May 25th in the final widespread media availability for Caps players last NHL season said that he himself was handling contract negotiations with McClellan and owner Ted Leonsis. Resigning Ovechkin obviously is a no-brainer. Best player in Caps history, maybe the best athlete in D.C. sports history. And the only mystery here is the terms of the deal. How much and for how long? This next season will be Ovechkin's age 36 season. He's still a very productive player. And nothing McClellan said on Saturday makes you think that anything other than an extension prior to Wednesday is coming between the two sides. And you know what? Even if the deal doesn't get done exactly by Wednesday at noon Eastern, the idea is they're working towards the extension. And hopefully, you know, if the deal isn't done by noon Eastern Wednesday, the deal is done shortly after then. But it sure feels like an extension is coming. And realistically, that's the only outcome that can happen here. The other thing of note from McClellan on Saturday was him not sounding like a general manager who is going to be trading Evgeny Kuznetsov. This, of course, has become a big-time storyline with the Capitals offseason. Will they trade Evgeny Kuznetsov? Should they trade Evgeny Kuznetsov? We all know the deal by now with old Kuzi. He is talented, but he is enigmatic. He is incredibly gifted, but he is also very much a pain in the neck in terms of some of his off-the-ice escapades. He's also expensive. The Caps in July 2017 signed Kuznetsov to an eight-year 624 million-dollar contract, and the Caps remain up against it when it comes to the salary cap. Here was McClellan this past Saturday on potentially trading Kuznetsov this offseason. He's a good player. We like the player. I've ne- I don't know. We've never said we're trading Kuznetsov. I, I said we're open to discussions on most of our players uh, for the trade market, you know, and if it comes up, it comes up, and if it doesn't make sense... Same as always, it's never been we're moving Kuznetsov, as it, you know, as it's been portrayed in a few places. But 
that's not exactly the case. Yeah, so I don't know about you, but I don't get the sense in listening to that that McClellan is itching to trade away Evgeny Kuznetsov. And truth be told, I don't think that McClellan should be itching to trade Evgeny Kuznetsov, at least not right now. And to me, there are two reasons not to trade Evgeny Kuznetsov this offseason. Number one, he is very talented, and he's the kind of guy who, as soon as you trade him, you're trying to replace him. So yes, he can be a headache to deal with, but also yes, He brings to the table skills that many other NHL players just don't have. The second reason not to trade Kuznetsov this offseason is you'd be trading him at a low value point. You'd be selling low, which is the exact opposite of what you always want to do as a general manager. Like if you're that intent on trading Kuznetsov, I think the better play would be to bring him back for next season, hope that he gets off to a hot start next season, and then trade him then. But to trade him now when there's all this talk about you potentially trading him, when he's coming off uh, you know, a lackluster season in which he twice had COVID-19, uh, I just don't think now is the time. I think it'd be pretty foolish to trade him now when his value has probably never been lower. But it's just it's so tricky with Kuznetsov. Like I go back to the final game of the cap season, the 3-1 loss to the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena in Game 5 in the first round of the 2021 Stanley Cup playoffs. So what's largely remembered about Kuznetsov in that game is the boo-boo that he committed. During a Caps third period power play, Kuznetsov inexplicably entered the crease on his own. He wasn't shoved into the paint and he shoved the Bruins goaltender Tuka Rask from behind, negating a sharp angle power play goal by Lars Eller with 5.37 left in the third period. The goal would have cut the Caps deficit to 3-2. You wanted to strangle Okuzi when he did that, but also from Kuznetsov in that game was him having a game-high five shots on goal, him having a game-high 10-shot attempts, and him being number two on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick at 75. So that game, in so many ways, a microcosm of Evgeny Kuznetsov as a capital. He can do things that make you nuts, but he also does things that are reflective of someone with an incredible skill set. And all you can hope for is that that skill set is on display full force Come this next capital season, he's only going into his age 29 season. I mean, he's not even 30 yet. I'd like to think that we haven't seen the best of Evgeny Kuznetsov, or at the very least, that we haven't seen the last of a truly productive Evgeny Kuznetsov. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday's show, episode 109, the final show before the start of Washington football team training camp. The show, of course, coming out on the day of the start of Washington football team training camp, a special day. And so I will have for you a special guest, Steve Zabin. Yes, Zabe, the recent run of former Galdi co-workers, the recent run of Fog, Friends of Galdi, We'll continue with Zabe, uh, and we will talk Washington football team as it begins camp, including what is an appropriate level of optimism for this coming season, and whether Ron Rivera is the head coach who can actually thrive under Dan Snyder. Also, we will conclude the position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team by talking special teams. Who will be the primary punt returner of Washington, having been terrible on punt returns over the last four seasons. And what about kicker? Do we trust Dustin Hopkins? And of course, I will have for you the latest 
on the Nationals, and who knows what could be going on with the Wizards and Bradley Beal as well. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. I've always kind of felt that way going into it.